Oh, hello, everybody. I have no idea. Let's see. Yesterday was the fourth. Whatever. This is the promotional malpractice live chat. Welcome. My name is Luke Thomas. This camera's a little bit close. Let's back that joker up a little bit so you're not up there looking at my gums. Uh, today is the 5th of November, 2014. Thank you for joining me. Today on the chat, the podcast, whatever you want to call this, we will talk about, uh, obviously, the two big, big being relatively speaking, UFC Fight Night cards this weekend. You have UFC Fight Night 55 on Friday night. It's in Sydney, Australia. And then you have another one on Saturday, which will air on Fox Sports 1, the previous one on Fight Pass, um, with Mauricio Shogun Hua and uh, Ovin St. Pru, which was not how it was supposed to be originally, but nevertheless worked out that way. Um, a lot of ways to ask questions, a lot of ways to still get involved, and I would appreciate it if you would. You can tweet me at, at SBN Luke Thomas. You may email me uh, luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Best place to ask questions, of course, is on MMA Fighting. If you're seeing this now, please share it, this video, this chat thread. Just share the link. Let folks know. Get on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I don't know. Whatever the relevant thing that kids are using these days. And, and share it. I would uh, greatly appreciate that. And, of course, if I haven't said it already, thank you for joining me. Um, <clears throat> it is the day after Election Day, which in D.C. Uh, could mean any number of things. But because D.C. is unbelievably liberal, everyone is sad. Take that for what it's worth. But that doesn't mean we're sad here. That means we march forward and we continue to do things. By the way, I keep getting questions like, oh, man, I missed your chat, and there's no way to see it after the fact. It's like, I don't know how many times i got to say this. Number one, the video will always be up. You can just watch the YouTube video after the fact. Second of all, uh, we're on iTunes. And I know everyone who watches this every week is like, Luke, why do you keep mentioning we're on iTunes? Because I get tweeted every day being like, hey, man, I wish your podcast were downloadable. It's like, well, coincidentally, it is. It's on SoundCloud. It's on Stitcher. It's on Podkicker. It's on iTunes. There's any number of ways you can get a hold of it. And if nothing else, just go watch the YouTube video. That's it. That's all you got to do. So, with that being out of the way, it's now 1.04 p.m. Um, let's get going. All right. First one. Interesting. Uh, Eddie Alvarez versus Benson Henderson. Who do you think wins this fight and how? What position would the loser be in after the fight? Um, that one's going to be a weird one. Because I feel like both of those guys will want to counter off the other. So while I still expect a bit of an action fight, I nevertheless also expect um, moments of hesitation. In the end, though, that one to me, um, that's going to be a weird one. That's going to be a really weird one. Ben Henderson said he wants to move up, move up to welterweight. I don't know that to what extent that will have any impact. Um, but Alvarez seems like the kind of guy who's going to want to pressure forward, but box from the outside very carefully, stuff any takedowns. I don't think he wants to end up in any wrestling scrambles if he can avoid it with Ben Henderson. He might want to mix it up a little bit just to keep Henderson sort of cautious and not kicking. Um, but I think that Henderson will still have the kicks open to him because I don't think he fears necessarily being taken down. I think he feels like he can get right back up when win any kind of physical scramble. I think he is, and Phil probably feels like he's the more physical of the two. Um, I could see Eddie, if he's really sort of applying his pressure, being able to piece uh, Benson up at times, but I wonder if Benson might make it in close quarters to nullify that a little bit. So, like, in other words, have use his kicking at range, but then if things get dicey, then quickly shorten the gap, press him against the cage, uh, fight him on the inside space. But it just looked to me, and also those leg kicks, like, you know, 
uh, Henderson has those leg kicks that aren't really above the knee. They're kind of below, but still equally painful and debilitating. Alvarez really had no answer for them against Cerrone. I don't know why. If it's not broken, don't fix it. You could go back to those as well. But I, I think the key thing that I'm going to watch out is for who eventually gets in the driver's seat. Because both of those guys respond to aggression, and they can be aggressive at times when they absolutely have to be, but they're so commonly accustomed to facing guys who are really drive forward, in your face, pressure fighters, and they kind of react to that. Um, and again, it's sort of strange to say that Ben Henderson might be a bit of a counterfighter, but sometimes he can be, sometimes. Uh, and then responds to that with his own measure of aggression that often makes him look like an aggressive fighter. But And he is, he can be, it's hard to explain exactly. But I, I do think there'll be a bit of posing off on this one. I want to see who really tries to assume control. Um, who t- sort of who sort of leads the charge in terms of applying offense consistently over the course of the rounds? I don't necessarily expect to finish either, so that one's going to be interesting. Um, Frankie Edgar being overlooked. I've noticed a lot of people when talking about the title picture at featherweight say either Cub Swanson is next or he's next after McGregor. Who do you think wins between Edgar and Swanson, and why do you think people are counting him out? I don't think people are really counting him out, to be honest. First of all, let's uh, do one of my favorite things to do. I always like looking at the odds. So you're gonna play, best place to do that is bestfightodds.com. I got the world's worst computer. Do they even have odds for that yet? No, it doesn't appear that they do. Well, whatever the case. I'd be curious to see what the odds are for that when they eventually come out. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think here's here's what's actually happened. Edgar's win over Penn was important, but it wasn't anything more than what you thought it was supposed to be. And that has been sandwiched between basically two two layoffs. I mean, this is a mini layoff that previously came with a layoff. By contrast, a couple things have happened. Number one, Swanson has had words with Edgar. Sorry, Swanson has had words with McGregor. McGregor has been this focal point around which the rest of the division seems to respond to, all the way up to Jose Aldo. We talked about that. How weird is it for McGregor to not be involved in a fight at all, and then the championship fight between the one and two guy finishes, and they both make statements about Conor McGregor? It's just bizarre. Totally bizarre. Uh, in a good way, bizarre, but bizarre. So first of all, there's that. Like He seems to have this gravitational pull on guys, and, and Swanson has been a part of that black hole, as it were. Swanson has been guys who's been jibber-jabbering with Conor McGregor through interviews or on social media and other things, so he's sort of been in the limelight that way. Edgar really has not taken part in that, not in any kind of substantive way, first of all. Second of all, Swanson came out and said, well, listen, um, if I win my next title fight, I'm next. Or I win my next fight with Edgar, then I'm next in line for the title shot, either ahead of McGregor or, you know, see what happens with the timing. Um... And that has sort of put him at the front of everyone's mind. But, that, but, but I don't think that anyone who pays attention to what is going on in this fight assumes this is some sort of foregone conclusion about how difficult it is. I think what they're thinking about is what's been presented to them. An angry Swanson. A Swanson who wants to fight a McGregor. A Swanson who is saying that management has promised him things. By contrast, Edgar has kept very quiet about all of it. I don't think that's the same as saying, well, everyone has thought it through and we've all collectively decided that Edgar has no chance. I don't think that's what's happened at all. I think what we've done is sort of game out the future 
based on what guys are saying publicly and what could potentially happen by those who are making themselves more visible. I really don't believe it to be the case at all that Edgar has been overlooked in any kind of sense that you're implying that he has no chance to win the fight. I just don't think folks have given him much consideration beyond what's been made publicly available to them. Very different things you have to think about. And, I, and to your point, as that fight gets closer and it narrows down, you're going to see that conversation change a little bit. You're going to see as Edgar gets asked about McGregor, as Edgar makes statements about McGregor, as Edgar makes statements about Aldo, um, and begins to get part of that conversation, part of that publicly acknowledged space in which fight fans um, move around and maneuver, um, that will change things. For now, I agree that more conversation is about McGregor, uh, Swanson, but that will change over time. Just give it time. Um, Frankie Edgar and movement. Luke, I loved your interview with Michael Page. Thank you very much. And what intrigued me the most was the footwork and movement comparison between striking styles. It got me thinking that Frankie Edgar, by the way, I didn't even like show you guys this. What a negligent D-bag I am. Die, Dr. Pepper. Sorry about that. It seems as though Edgar uses a lot, uh, or let me, go, let me walk it back one sense. It got me thinking that Frankie Edgar has a very different style to that which was discussed in the interview, and also what has become a talking point since McGregor criticized Thai boxing. It seems as though Edgar uses a lot of lateral movement when sizing up an opponent and looking for an opening. But when he actually attempts an offensive move, he is inclined to use erratic head and body movement and st stray away from the lateral side he leaves until the pocket and looks for a way in again. Have I got this right? If not, could you correct me and also talk about its strength, weaknesses, and how it will play into the Swanson fight? And someone mentions that BJJ Scout has done a little bit on this. Yeah, I, let, let me say something about that. Edgar is hittable early but adapts. And what he does is shows you a lot of movement early to confuse you and to figure out how he can and can't move in on you. I agree he doesn't have... Um, the wider angles that you're talking about. So if we're standing directly in front of each other, Edgar doesn't really attack from here, right? But he might attack from here, which is not here, just off to the side. This is sort of the space in which Edgar operates. What you're talking about is this, wide open spots, right? Um, and of course he comes in and out too. That's another bit of an issue. Um, I also think that he doesn't, he has a sort of a more consistent range of attack. He doesn't really mix up his kicking as much as he could. He does do some of it, but I think if he was really sort of as, as capable with his kicking as he was with his punching and his attacks were a little more diverse in that way, which isn't to say that he doesn't use a diverse array of hand combinations and foot, footwork because he does, but I just mean if he had one more wrinkle to it, he could really confuse guys. And he does also mix in takedowns too. But to your point, he is a little bit hittable early if only because um, I don't think he attacks as much early. I think his attacks earlier on are basic. Um, I don't think he goes as wide as he could or even should. Um, but I, I do think that, um, you know, what he does, he tries to sort of, how do I explain this? He, he sort of walks side, he doesn't walk exactly, but he sort of moves side to side to get, and then faints and then, you know, gets reactions out of you based on how he moves. And that sets him up a little bit because he goes back to a lot of the well a lot of the time and guys can then time him pretty quickly. Um, but eventually you'll notice that his hand combinations begin to really open up, that he can get in, get out, that he goes to the body, and then when guys, you know, sort of slump down, he cracks him over the top. You saw that a lot in the BJ Penn fight. You even saw it in the later rounds. 
in the Jose Aldo fights. He's really sort of good about uh, getting you to cover up from strikes later in a fight. That's really where he is, I think, excels. It's not so much the angle necessarily at which he comes, um, but getting you to defensively shell in a way that leaves some measure of the rest of your body exposed for him to then attack, even if it's defensively shelled here, and then he, you know, lateral, um, then he changes levels and comes in for a double or some kind of a takedown. He's really sort of good in that respect. But it takes him a while to get to a point where he's mixing it up. I think early on, when he's trying to gauge your reactions, he's giving you a lot of things that are easier at a time. He's giving you a lot of looks that aren't that hard to hit, and he takes a pounding for it. And he also is defensively a little bit wary about you. That's why he was open, I think, in those Benson-Henderson fights early on to those leg kicks, especially in the first fight. Um, and in the Jose Aldo fights, too, it's only after he's got a real sense about how you're going to react to his timing that he really kind of turns it on, which is why, as we know, he kind of takes a beating. So to me, it's less about the angle necessarily, like does he really attack wide. It's more about getting you to react in a way that he wants, um, both from your positioning of your elbows and your hands, your feet in relation to him, but he doesn't really get you, like Conor McGregor really sort of attacks you from angles. Um, you know, he doesn't he doesn't do a lot of stuff to get you to react in a certain way. He sort of forces you to react to him. And maybe, you know, maybe you find that preferable. Maybe that is preferable. But uh, at this point, Edgar is who he is. And I just think that's the real takeaway is, is he, he requires enough time to force reactions out of you that he can then work off of. But until he can get you moving and covering up and coming into him or moving in a certain direction, he ha he's, his offense can be really muted in that way. Uh, let's see. Michael Venom Page Technique Talk. People seem to like it. Um, I found it really refreshing to hear MVP talk about his enjoyment watching fighters with wrestling and jiu-jitsu backgrounds. Uh, I believe this was only in the audio. It was. Typically, when a fighter comes from a predominantly one background, he trashes the other backgrounds as tedious and less important. One example is Pat Berry, who always resented the ground part of his game. But it is common the other way, too, with wrestlers sort of trashing the stand-up game, etc. Do you think this attitude will bring him success, and do you feel like more fighters should take this open-minded approach? Whether or not the attitude... Um, here's what I would say about his attitude. First of all, thanks for everyone who read it and shared it and, and, and offered positive feedback. What I would say about his attitude is that it's probably going to be a precondition of success, but no guarantee. You know, Michael Page has a very different kind of body type. He's long and lanky, and to the extent that he can make that use, useful for himself, Omoplatas and arm bars off the ground, if he can get his hips up and, and spin off his shoulders, maybe that's beneficial. Or use it to put feet in the hips and stand up, um, dig for underhooks, you know, secure a nice body lock takedown, or a clinch high up around the shoulders, or... Um, you know, or using a stiff arm to keep guys out there, or whatever the case may be, he's got one of those body types that's not, uh, it's not about being less common or, or more common, it's just about, that's one of those body types that you either use for your success or it eats you alive in this game. And that doesn't, that's not the case for all body types. A Frankie Edgar skill set might have sort of benefits and, and, and downsides, but the body type necessarily doesn't confer a tremendous amount of benefit or, or uh, complication. Michael Page is in a bit of a different scenario. I think those long, lanky guys, you can find guys who are really dangerous with them, and you can find guys that just can't seem to come uh, get over the top with them. Now, I'm going to pick two names here, and they're both very successful fighters, but it should be known about something. And I'm going to say Anderson Silva and Carlos Condit, guys who have fairly similar body types. Less so Anderson Silva, but he's still long and lean. He's only thickened out later as he's gotten older. 
Um, and Carlos Condit, too. Now, Condit has found ways around some of his problems. I think his takedown defense has always been a problem. He's easy to get in on, you know, not because he's a bad fighter, but because that part, he has, ex we talked about the flyweights in terms of overcoming people and convincing them of their prowess. Um, it's, it's a relatively similar argument with, with Condit, which is to say his body, when you see tall, whenever I go to practice, and again, I'm no, believe me, I'm a zero, but if I see a tall, lanky guy, I always like that. I always like that because even if they limp leg, you can you know you can get a hold of something. You can get a hold of something, and especially if they're you know they're they're really lean too, because that means they're not necessarily going to be that strong. Um, but you know the, the point being is his wrestling has always kind of suffered. I think guys have, can get a hold of his legs and run the pipe on him or or grab the other one, and it's always been a bit of an issue. Now he's overcome that in a variety of ways. Chief among them, the praise that I sing for Carlos Condit is that I think his guard, his defensive guard. Um, which is really an offensive guard, is tremendous. He's one of the few guys in MMA that completely disrupts your balance on top because he is going for sweeps all the time underneath, man. You give him one butterfly hook and you better hold on for you better hold on to your ass, man, because he's gonna make you suffer for it. So um, so so really he's found ways around that, but we're just asking how is his defensive wrestling? It's, it's a problem. Anderson Silva has gotten better about it, particularly against the fence, but in open spacing, his takedown defense is still pretty poor. So um, those body types, you know, I just feel like they have a harder time. You have your hearts, you have such long legs, you have to get your hips down to the mat. It's just a more difficult task to do. And so uh, I worry about that. At the same time, both those guys are excellent kickboxers and Silva and Condit, excellent kick kickboxers from reach. So we'll see, you know, I think to your point, you know, Pat Barry has always had his issues with jiu-jitsu and wrestling and it, and it probably caused him a lot of issues in his career, um, which is winding to a close it appears. But nevertheless, I think your point is well taken, but I just want to be clear that open-mindedness, while valuable and important, is really no guarantee of anything. He has to put in the work and demonstrate some, some ability that he can overcome what is both in some ways a tremendous benefit and in other ways a tremendous liability in one of these body types that lends itself to certain attacks from other opponents. It just does. But also lends themselves to certain kinds of advantages from their own attacks. It's, it's, it really is a special kind of body type. Say for like Sean Shirk, you know, how hard was Sean Shirk to, to choke? You know, I mean... Guys got close, but it was difficult, man. He's just hard to choke. There's certain certain advantages that are conferred by being squatty as hell, being the muscle shark, and having a neck that, you know, your delts are just barely past. It's crazy. Luke, last weekend I had the chance to train and roll with Joao Miao. Me too. Were we at the same school? I'm only a blue belt, but I watched Joao roll with and totally dominate everyone, including black belts in various weights. Do you think modern BJJ techniques such as the Barambolo could be utilized in MMA? It has been a little bit, but not much. I understand the added difficulty uh, because of striking and the lack of a gi, but is it not possible that if more time was dedicated to modern or sport BJJ techniques... MMA fighters could find ways of transitioning to the back or attacking with more diversity. If so, why haven't we seen it yet? I still think that people always talk about, oh, what do we miss in pride, man? What do we miss in pride? You know, all right, maybe not the stomps, but sometimes the stomps are great. The soccer kicks, man. We miss, we miss, you know, 
um, knees to the head of a grounded opponent or maybe the 10 minute round or yellow cards and stuff like that. But those are the things you commonly hear. Dude, you know what I missed from Pride? And I was thinking about this the other day. I missed the gi. I missed the gi, man. Like Hidehiki Yoshida without the gi, not that he was like the best fighter ever, but without the gi, I don't know that he would have made half the impact that he did. But with the gi, he was just so much better. He could keep guard if he had to in desperate situations, and he could use his own gi for Ezekiel chokes and all kinds of things. I kind of miss the gi in MMA. For Halloween, I was like thinking about costumes last minute. I'm like, ah, what am I going to do? So I was thinking about I was going to put on my gi, and then I have these old MMA gloves, and I was going to go as Yoshida. Now, in the end, I thought it would be a bad idea for any number of reasons, but um, it just got me to thinking, like, how different is this to be able to strike, strike, grab, and you can grab your own lapel when you want to finish an arm bar. Like all kinds of crazy advantages, but also weird things that, you know, listen, if you have a gi on and someone else doesn't, they can still take your back and do a bow and arrow choke. Like there's all kinds of things. That's kind of what I miss about uh, uh, Pride, among all the things everyone else lists too. Um, I just want to sort of point that out. I was just thinking about Pride the other day. And I was like, God, I miss the ability of like, guys to be able to use the gi and how much it changed things. But sticking with the story, and the question, if you don't know what the Barambolo is, imagine we're facing each other. You're kind of sitting, I'm kind of sitting, but we're in super close contact. And then I spin my head underneath your legs, push you over onto your hip, and then come out, basically like this, I come out like that, and I take your back. That's kind of what a Barambolo is, more or less. There's all kinds of different entries and things like that, but just as a basic explanation. And people say, well, why wouldn't that work in MMA? Well, if you watch it in real time, they don't just spin under and automatically take it. Sometimes they have to slowly, methodically take it. And you can imagine how you might get pounded on in the process. Um, guys have done it when opponents have not been that good. I can imagine guys in Bellator using other guys. Never seen an organization more where guys go for attempted throws and either end up being mounted or having their back taken in Bellator. It's kind of funny. Uh, it could work there. At the highest level, I don't think it could work consistently. But I would say as a cautionary note, Every time we get to this position in jiu-jitsu or in MMA, where we're like, oh, we've reached the end of technical development. Everyone's good at jiu-jitsu or submissions. You know, get your sambo, guys. Oh, everyone's good at striking. Everyone's good at wrestling. Everyone has good cardio. Everyone has good teams and good nutrition. This is the end of things. This is never the end of things. Guys will always find some measure of technical adaptation to bring in. It might be subtle. It might be significant. But we never want to mentally get in a position where we have found ourselves to borrow from Francis Fukuyama at the end of history, as if this is the culmination of technique and we have no more to give. At some point, we might get there in the very distant future, but for now, we, we are still in a transition between what we were and what we will be. All right, um, there's a really long question about pay-per-view trends, but it's got 11 wrecks. Let's just, let's just do it. I'll try to make it as quick as possible. Okay, Luke, on the MMA beat, you mentioned the story about a friend of yours who told you you started watching MMA around UFC 50 and stopped MMA somewhere around the time Lesnar lost his title. It wasn't my friend. It was an interview that Keenan Cornelius did. I want to see this actually correlated with actual data. So I dumped all the pay-per-view buys into Excel and made a simple line chart. I kid you not, the chart correlates exactly to what he said. Thank you. The UFC literally starts to trend up past UFC 50. There's an obvious decline that happens after Lesnar losing the title, and it really took a nosedive after GSP Shields. I think there are two obvious things. This is his words, not mine. I think there are two obvious things that stand out surrounding the decline in pay-per-view buys at the end of 2010 and early 2011. Number one, UFC lost star power from three highly profitable divisions. At lightweight, August 2010, BJ Penn lost a rematch to Edgar. 
uh, at heavyweight October 2010. Brock Lesnar lost his title and didn't compete for over a year. Um, and at welterweight April 2011, GSP was effectively out of action until the end of 2012. Number two, the UFC dramatically increased pay-per-views in 2010 and 2011. There were 13 pay-per-views in 2009. The UFC increased this to 15 in 2010 and 16 in 2011. I really think the combination of the UFC literally losing their biggest stars in such short period of, in short period, and stupidly adding more events popped the MMA bubble. Well, I don't think there's been an MMA bubble, which I'll explain in a second. As a side note for fans today who don't realize how strong MMA was back at its absolute peak, which was the summer of 2009. That July 2009 was UFC 100. He says, UFC 99, which was Franklin versus Silva, reportedly did 30,000 more pay-per-view buys than UFC 166, which is Velasquez versus JDS. Think about that. A UFC card from Germany broadcasted live during the afternoon without a title fight did more buys than an amazing card like UFC 166. And then he's got a huge chart to show everything. Um, let me just say one thing. You can take that information and you can and you can make judgments about his conclusions or not. And I appreciate it's a very long and thoughtful comment. So thank you very much. It's from Greg P. Let me make one comment about there being an MMA bubble because I'm the first person to say that and I made this to the point of the MMA beat recently which was that folks don't realize the history of combat sports, the Kakutogi boom, and in Brazil, it, it lends itself to boom and bust cycles. I don't think the MMA bubble really popped. I don't think that's true. I don't think that there was something happening out there that had uh, what, what was underwriting it was fleeting or somehow false and not sustainable. What I think happened was, frankly, a natural contraction. It couldn't stay as hot as it once was. Uh, it's just not possible. Part of what has happened since Lesnar has departed the sport, I think, is, in my judgment, strategic error and some choices that UFC has made that has not been ultimately to their benefit. That's just my opinion. I could be wrong, but that's sort of how I view things. But part of that, in absolute fairness to them, was that what they had, I thought, was frankly, you know, inevitable that it would decline in some capacity, that it would cool off in some capacity. And we can quibble about what the definition of a bubble is. You, know, you can talk about strictly economic terms, about what is an economic bubble and, and sort of what is a, a bubble as it relates to sort of popular attractions uh, and how the two uh, are connected or how they're not. But I just mean to say, I think part of that contraction, fans are like, well, it contracted after Lesnar left. Lesnar wasn't going to be in the sport forever. His departure was somewhat early. But there was always going to be a natural cooling off period. It was going to come back to earth a little bit. Um, and I think we should give the UFC the benefit of the doubt in that regard. What we should, what we should be more curious about, what we should be more uh, scrutinizing about, are other tactical, uh, or I should say, other sort of business visions that they've had, and whether or not they are possible, and whether or not they've been successful. That's a separate question than well, Lesnar left and the whole thing. You know, there was there was somehow a bubble that popped. I, don't, I really I take issue with that. I take issue with that. I don't think there was ever a bubble. I think the UFC did a lot of things to insulate themselves from boom-bust cycles. And I think that seven-year Fox deal, how, whatever their other problems with that deal may be, has been one way of keeping that alive and, and, and preventing them from hitting these rock-hard bottoms or, these, these, to be quite frank, from doing these huge, um, you know, how do I say this exactly? From producing the kind of consumer experience that is ultimately based on fleeting interest and, and uh, phony demand. 
So let's just be fair to UFC here a little bit. They were always going to come back to earth, and that's fine. You can't keep everything that hot forever or hotter and hotter and hotter. They peaked with Lesnar. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's other things you have to investigate. <coughs> I want to read, by the way, just quickly the definition, the textbook definition of economic bubble, just to see what we can do. Um, that's not going to give us help. Well, it depends. Some call it an economic cycle characterized by a rapid expansion followed by a contraction. Uh, I guess in that sense it'd be a bubble. Others wouldn't call it a surge in equity prices. That has nothing to do with it. A theory that security prices... Bubbles form in economies, securities, stock markets, and business sectors because of a change in the way players conduct business. This can be a real change as occurred in the bubble economy of Japan in the 1980s when banks were partially deregulated. Uh, during the boom, people bought tech stocks at high prices, believing they could sell them at a higher price until confidence was lost in a large market correction or crash occurs. See, I don't think there's been a crash. Uh, 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 a, a cooling off, yes, but not a crash. Um, and whatever happened in Japan has nothing to do with UFC. Bubbles in equities markets and economies cause resources to be transferred to areas of rapid growth. At the end of the bubble, resources are moved again, causing prices to deflate. Thus, there's little room, little long-term return on those assets. I don't know. I just don't think it's the most effective way to, to talk about things. Um, let's see. Someone says, makes a comment, to, sort of uh, mapping what I'm saying. I agree with Snake Charmer. Sports have cycles. MLB had a drop-off after the strike year. McGuire and Bonds brought back their ratings. You may argue MLB is down again. Their World Series ratings were one of the worst this year, saved only by Game 7. NFL was dropped from Monday Night Football on ABC a few years ago, and now their TV contracts are insane. Same could be said about golf without Tiger as the perennial number one. With the, the viewership is Golf in general is in trouble. Forget about Tiger Woods. Uh, furthermore, it's been a pretty bad year about... A bunch of other stuff. First of all, I'm sweating like a whore in church in this place. Hang on. There we go. All right. Now I can breathe. All right. Someone says, promotional malpractice live chat. This is awesome. Take a shot if Luke mentions Real Madrid. Real Madrid. Take a shot if Luke gets a phone call, apologizes for the phone call, then takes another phone call. Phone is off. If Luca makes fun of professional wrestling, y'all know how I feel. There's a bunch more of these. You should go down and take a take a look at them. All right. Ronda and PEDs. On the MMA Hour this week, Ronda said that if a person dies in the octagon, their opponent is found to have been using PEDs. We're going to have a murder case in MMA, which could potentially destroy the sport. Do you have any idea about what would happen if someone was to die in the cage and their opponent tested positive for PEDs? Would there be a murder case as Ronda described? Well, I'm certainly no legal expert. I don't know that she's that crazy, though. I, I wouldn't be in favor of charging someone with PEDs. And by the way, let me just say something about the comments generally, like this PED scourge that we have in the sport. I don't. My only issue with PEDs is I actually kind of feel like that to some extent we should allow them and regulate them. I don't want to get into that debate. But what I would say is if we're not going to be able to do that, then we have to find ways to effectively ban them from the sport, which I think would require third-party third independent testing vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, USADA or USADA, however you want to pronounce it. Okay? That's, that's what I would say. 
Let me say something, though, about people being like, oh, my God, you know, Michael Bisping's career has been affected by people using PEDs. And there's absolutely no doubt about that. that has, but that has affected the height to which he has soared. That's not the same thing as fighter safety. Okay? Uh, I suppose on some level the TRT with Dan Henderson and that knockout he had might be part of it. But I was just thinking, like, if we're really concerned with fighter safety, PEDs is not what I would point to as a, at least a predominant problem that we have. I would point to, like, a bad referee. Because a bad referee can affect, and PEDs can do this too, but it's not really germane until we're talking about guys on, like, amateur fighters have died, the sport has moved on, you know. Um, and those guys aren't tested for even HIV in some places. It's really at the top level when you talk about concerns about what PEDs could do to a public image to damaging the sport. And I would submit to you, having a bad referee is much worse because it can affect, uh, first of all, it's, like, Think about it this way. You can get a bad referee in any state at any level of the sport, and it doesn't take a whole lot of error from them to cause a whole lot of problems. It can affect both genders. It can affect two clean athletes. It can affect um, any number of things. Moreover, um, those referees often return to work. Now, if they got somebody killed, I don't know, but it's happened in boxing. Boxing referees who have been in fights where guys have killed have found work again. That's not unheard of at all. So to me, you know, I, I, I wouldn't... Listen, if I had a brother who fought and he died because the guy who fought him was on PEDs, I'd probably have some issues with that. But I just mean to say that if we're really concerned about fighter safety, it is much more important to get officiating right. Having a bad referee, an incompetent one, a late one, a one who simply has no business being there can affect anybody's career at any level and at the highest level just the same. It's really not true for PEDs in terms of the damage they can cause the sport or individual fighters' careers uh, in that way. Um, the only thing I would point to is, in terms of Ron is saying, oh, there'd be a murder case. I, I'm not a legal expert. I, I, I couldn't possibly answer that. But what I would say is, do you remember when uh, old Marty McSorley uh, did the old high sticking on what's-his-face? And he got charged for it. Um, who did he high stick? Brashear. That's who it was. Do you remember this? Hold on. Pull this up. Uh, Donald Brashear, who I think played for the Caps not, until not too recently. When he high sticked him and then he fell backwards and his head hit the ice and he faced... Criminal proceedings, McSorley suspension, and eventual retirement from the NHL. But there was—I think he was nearly—I think he was nearly tried for that, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, on February 21st, McSorley swung his stick and hit Donald Brashear in the head. With 4.6 seconds left in the game, Brashear fell backwards and hit his head on the ice, losing consciousness and suffering a Grade Three concussion. Um, McSorley was charged with assault and suspended by the NHL for the remainder of the 1999-2000 season, missing 23 games. On October 6, 2000, Judge William Kitchen of the British Columbia Provincial Court found him guilty of assault with a weapon for his attack on Brashear. He was sentenced to 18 months probation. The trial was the first for an on-ice attack by an NHL player since uh, blah, 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 blah. After his assault conviction, his NHL suspension was extended to one full year through February 21st, 2001. McSorley would never play in another NHL game. So I don't know exactly what would happen. I think 
maybe nothing if somebody died. I, I don't know. I don't, le- I don't trust commissions to do much, to be frank. But, um, that, you know, not a lot of guys get charged for high sticking, even when, with egregious ones in the NHL. And Marty McSorley did, and he went to trial for it. I, I wouldn't, I guess what I would say is I wouldn't preclude the possibility. All right, let's do some true or false. When John Jones moves up in weight, Alexander Gustafson will be champion for a long time. I don't think Gus beats DC, y'all. Sorry. Michael Chandler will fight in the UFC someday. It's probably true. Conor McGregor is the best trash talker of all time, not Chael Sonnen. False. Tito Ortiz will knock out Bonner. I don't know. Bonner's got a pretty good chin. TJ, so say false. TJ Dillashaw will finish Dominic Cruz. False. One of the Diaz brothers will be champion in 2015. False. Kat Zingano will go the distance with Ronda and lose a controversial split decision. I'd like to say false. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, I'd like to say false. I'm hoping that's true. Not that she would lose a controversial split decision in that way, but just that the sport might be random and surprise us in ways we never expect. Because I don't expect that. But I know somewhere in the recess of my head, she's probably capable of more than I give her credit for. And so I would like to see that. Luke, if Frankie Egger can't get past, do we not know how to conjugate verbs? P-A-S-S-E-D. If Frankie Egger can't get past Cub Swanson, should he move back up to lightweight? No. Um, he could even go down to bantamweight. His striking coach told me personally he could make bantamweight. It's like, without much issue. Keep that in mind. Someone says there was also Todd Bertuzzi in the NHL as well. There you go. True or false, you'd shave your beard if a DC sports team won the championship this year. No. It would take a lot more than that. Uh, oh, Scott Coker tweeted me. Oh, there you go. Thanks, Scott. See, I got other people on Twitter saying they also missed the gi. Um... Let's see. Another true or false. If Bisping wins impressively, he'll get a title shot. Um, false. If Shogun loses, he'll retire. False. Anderson Silva fights five more times. False. GSP returns in 2015. Probably true. Dillashaw still has the belt after 2015. False. Barrow is champion again. That's a difficult one. I'll say false, but I don't know. No Brazilian champions after 2015. False. Mark Hunt, quote, I hit him in the head and there goes your effing black belt. Is Mark Hunt the best striker Verdum has faced or do you see Verdum going for the takedown straight away? Do you see Verdum testing his striking? Someone was asking about this because if you guys haven't seen it, Bloody Elbow is doing a best striker ever fan poll. It's like a bracketed tournament and they've seeded the tournament and then you vote to see who moves on. When people say, like, oh, he's the best striker in mixed martial arts, I always wonder what that means. Or even, he didn't even specify here, like, is Mark Hunt the best striker Verdum has faced? Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be the best striker? Um, the most accomplished in a striking realm? Um, in, 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 in striking specific sports? The guy who most effectively uses his striking in UFC fights? Like, what exactly does that mean? In some respects, I think Mark Hunt poses striking challenges that Verdum may find uniquely difficult, but 
you know, Verdum fought Alistair Overeem after Alistair Overeem won the K1 world title before K1 was trash. Um, so there's that. Verdum also fought Emelianenko. Emelianenko wasn't the best striker per se, but effectively used striking for a good portion of his career, even though he had sort of openings that um, he, he created as well. The offensive side of his game was really rather potent. So there's that. And by the way, it kind of hurt him in that in that fight too. Um But Mark Hunt can be different too. Mark Hunt can get his hips out from underneath him. Um, the question is, how how would it match up? How does Mark? It's always the specifics. It's always the specifics. How is it in the way that Mark Hunt uses striking, which is basically like a heavyweight Chuck Liddell, more or less? Um, how does that match up against what Verdum does? For me, the Verdum is going to have to take the fight long and avoid big problems. Wear Mark Hunt out, clinch up with him for two reasons. One. We all kind of forget how much Roy Nelson got chewed up in Fabrizio Verdum's clinch, number one. And number two, just getting on his arms and then pummeling inside and going for takedowns and making him fight off and not giving him space to work so that he can't punch you very hard and he can't kick you very hard. And he has to kind of always dig his arms in and get some heavy and slows him down. I think that's what you're going to see. And then you're going to see Verdum use his kicks from distance, front kicks, outside leg kicks, and then circling out and circling out. I think that fight's going to be kind of boring if it's up to Verdum for the first couple of rounds. But as as uh, old um, Mark Hunt fades, which you know I don't have no guarantees he will, but if it goes according to Verdum's plans, I think that's when you're going to see Verdum really turn it up and then begin to exchange with him a little bit. But I think Verdum sort of understands what he's up against here and what his u- unique advantages are as well. If you can get this guy tired at high altitude, it's yours for the taking most likely because on the ground, I have found one of the big tremendous differences in Mark Hunt to be He was always pretty athletic for a big guy, but the mobility of his hips has really become, frankly, Fedor-esque in some ways. Um, He's really just so mobile with his hips, really moves him around a lot in ways he just never used to. Even on the ground, like when he bridges, man, he bridges hard. He brings all that weight up, he gets over on his shoulder, and he moves, you know, he moves. So for me, that's kind of the the issue here. so I don't know. I don't know how it's going to go. You know, I think that I favor Verdum just because of the structural challenges that the hurdles that Mark Hunt has to get over, the late notice, the high altitude against a guy who has had plenty of time to get used to both. Um, but but it's never like when someone says, oh, he's the best striker, what does that mean? Best striker for who? Best striker in what context? Best striker in what kind of application? And do you need to be the best striker to necessarily have the most effect striking with somebody. Rashad Evans, I think most would say, is not the striker Chuck Liddell is. It, did, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And yes, that was Chuck in his much later career. But but going into that, no one was like, oh, well, Rashad can just strike just as well. He didn't have to strike just as well. He had to just be efficient and wait for an opportunity. Is that the same thing as being the best striker? I don't, I don't know. In some ways it is. In some ways it's not. Uh, true or false? Dillashaw versus Cruz turns out to be one of the greatest and most technical fights of all time. Uh, I wouldn't rule out the possibility. Chris Weidman is the UFC's biggest pay-per-view draw. False. Eddie Wineland's next fight will be at 125. I hope not. Michael McDonald's next fight will be at 145. That seems possible. Nate Diaz beats Rafael Dos Anjos. God damn, I got these beard hairs that go up into my nose. And fights for the UFC belt in 2015. False. Tyrone Woodley versus Hector Lombard happens in 2015. Never say never, but it seems to be false. 
There will be new champions in every weight class by the end of 2016. That's a tough one. By the end of 2016. I'll say false. Um, do I see Vanderlei Silva versus Phil Baroni happening? Probably not. Do you think Anderson Silva's hospitalization is a sign that he should stop fighting? I see Anderson Silva's age as a sign he should stop fighting, irrespective of this particular uh, situation. I mean, listen, Jose Aldo and his guys get hospitalized for all kinds of reasons. Um, I don't know what you're asking. If you're asking that his age will prevent him from competing and training at a level that's required to beat the guys who, even at this late stage in his career, he's competing against, or whether that his body has somehow betrayed him in some capacity. Um, I would just say, like, when these guys want to retire, and, like, it's, they never want to retire on these losses, and God, I understand that. And I favor Silva to beat Nick Diaz. But we have to, like, how... How many times does MMA need to be crazy before we just accept that we can't really know anything? I'll do predictions, you know, and sometimes I'll be right and sometimes I'll be wrong. But really, whenever I write them, I'm like, I have no effing clue what's going to happen. Except when it's like Chad Mendes versus Cody McKenzie. And then even then, you know, we're, this is a sport where McKenzie could probably knock him out in the right circumstance. It's a, it's a, it's a bat-ass sport. It's a crazy sport. What if Nick Diaz goes in there and just boxes him up? And then knocks him out cold, has him slumped on the mat, like the way in which Silva left Franklin. What would you say then? You know? I don't see that as particularly likely, but for me, it's like you're trying to, I don't know. It's not my career to manage, and no one cares about what my opinion is as it relates to this. But when when forces naturally push you in one direction, you should you should follow them. You should follow them. That's sort of my attitude. And if guys don't want to listen, they don't have to. And if they can keep fighting and winning, God bless them. But I just feel like when it's your time to... Like, the reason why you're having success is because many factors that make sense are helping that to take place. You're in shape. You're probably youthful. You're, you have a skill advantage. You haven't taken too much damage. And when you start to lose, it's because those factors that created an environment for success have now begun to change in ways that make success significantly harder to come by. And so this idea that it was some other thing that you can pinpoint, I mean, sometimes when you lose, yeah, you, you may still be young and in shape and better. You may be made a tactical decision. Zig, when you're supposed to zag, you hit a punch and you go down. But for me, if you're 39 years old and you're losing in ways which you've never lost before um, and you're showing signs of weaknesses that you've never shown, to me... That is an indication of the underlying conditions that were responsible for your success are beginning to go away. And so people are like, oh, well, GSP will come back. And GSP didn't lose against Hendricks, although I thought he should have. Um, it's the same thing with him. The conditions that existed that were responsible for your success. Also, what state was the mixed martial arts game in at the time when you were 27 or 28 years old? Versus now being, what, 32 or 33? The game has changed. Your body has changed. Your competitors have changed. The dynamic between them all has changed. And so this side, this is that, that's why like the, the, the longevity that GSP enjoyed and Anderson Silva enjoyed is so special and so remarkable and so worthy of our adoration. And yet an important reminder that the longevity 
while be having longevity, it, all of it has a conclusion. It all has a conclusion. And when you begin to notice that they've changed, it changes all. It changes a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then all at once, man. It changes all at once. That's why you often hear fighters being like, oh, you got old overnight. Because once those conditions begin to slip, it takes that much for the whole dynamic to shift. Now maybe that's not yet. Maybe that's not here yet for Anderson Silva. We're gonna find out against Nick Diaz or get at least a better idea. I'm not here to bury him until it's we're ready to bury him. But but my my hunch, which is unscientific, but my hunch is that the conditions of his the conditions that were responsible for creating his success have fundamentally changed. And trying to recapture them, it's gonna be a tall task. Uh, did you watch at the time UFC 1? I didn't catch up till UFC until like UFC, I think 4 had already happened. I didn't see, I didn't see until it was like UFC 2. I saw 2, 1, 3, and then 4. That's how I saw it. Pre impression of the early days of the sport. I thought Hoist Gracie was the baddest man alive. Um, I discovered it because my dad was, my dad used to be a foreign service officer and then gave that up to renovate homes buy him, renovate him, flip him, basically, and had a guy who worked for him uh, on the on the computer side that was like a martial arts nerd, and he was like, I was like, I think uh, my parents were divorced, so in the summers I would live with my father, and uh, and he was like, dude, you gotta see this thing, man, like everybody else, like, dude, you gotta see this thing, and he's like, there's this Brazilian guy who is so small, and he's just crushing all these fools, I was like, alright, let's see it, and I saw it, and it was like, I, you know, like everybody else, I couldn't believe it. And so we went to the Blockbuster the next day because he owned one of the tapes. I rented as many as they had. I don't think they had, So maybe I saw 2, 1, 4, and then 3. I think that's what I did. Maybe 2, yeah, 2, 1, 4, and then 3 because they didn't have 3 at the time. Um, anyway, and then I sort of fell off with it, picked it up a little bit uh, at the end of college, and then after college, got really heavy into it, um, 2003. And then 04, and then 05 decided to. Oh, you get the idea. No one cares. All right. Silva signed a UFC contracts. Do Silva and Sonnen's contracts with the UFC require them to receive the UFC's blessing for a match at Metamoris? I don't think so. No. That will have stipulations for other things like um, the use of all-terrain vehicles or kickboxing or boxing or something else that involves striking of the potential, the, the great potential, I should say, for concussions. Because you can get concussed in jiu-jitsu, although it's a lot harder, obviously. Um, no, but I don't think for Metamorphs they do necessarily know. Because you have to do all those things to train anyway. The, the difference between high-level hardcore gym training and jiu-jitsu and competition is not, it's pretty insignificant. Um, it, it may boil down to simply just the mercy of your training partner or your opponent in a, in, a, in a match. If you get your arm locked out, how far do they stretch it, you know, that kind of thing. Or your willingness to sort of fight through it if your arm is, is fully extended. Uh, Luke, it is my belief that the UFC's strategy for the last two to three years has been to try and attract new eyes outside of the MMA world. Bellator's strategy and focus has been on getting the MMA fans to watch the promotion, not necessarily to attract new viewers. Sort of. 
With a dramatic decline in the UFC pay-per-view buys, should the UFC shift its focus to getting all the MMA fans to buy into their programming again and slow down on trying to grow the sport by reaching new fans who don't normally watch the UFC? I think that's what I've been saying all along. Um, although I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify a Bellator strategy like that. Bellator strategy has been really weird under the tournament system, a system that they used far past the point at which it served its usefulness. Um, I think their strategy was they thought they could launch an alternative to the UFC on a network known for mixed martial arts and produce the kind of numbers that would be of interest to them and valuable to the company. And it did not work that way. So as a matter of fact, I think the new strategy is to definitely attract uh, more MMA fans to Spike to get more viewers of Spike to watch Bellator um, and to do the kind of events that raise its profile generally. Uh, for what the UFC has been trying to do is they believe that they have enough of a product that they can serve a bunch of different masters, Ultimate Fighter Latin America, Ultimate Fighter Nations, uh, X amount of Fox Sports 1 shows, X amount of Fox shows, X amount of pay-per-view shows in New Zealand, shows in Australia, shows in Sweden, shows in Brazil, shows in the UK. This goes on. And that way they could keep a consistent level of the product um, so that they could grow the product in those countries in ways that they're limited by when it's airing at 4 in the morning. I don't think that that insight is necessarily wrong. And I don't think it will fail... Uh, I think, rather I should say, I think in certain countries that will work. I also think, though, that trying to solve that problem by going to all those countries creates a whole other host of problems, potentially, and, and not even potentially, in actuality, in your key markets of Canada, the United States, and Brazil. Those are your three top, where the market is cooled in all three. Um, two of those being your pay-per-view base. That it's that there's a questions about doing it. I was having this discussion on. I know if you don't watch soccer, you don't have to. It's not a soccer discussion, but consider something, right? There was a question, like you look at who has massive television rights fees, right? Massive television rights fees. Um, the biggest one globally, I believe, is either for Champions League stuff uh, or uh, just straight out English Premier League, and particularly in Asia, like they just pay, un, I mean, billions of dollars. That the that they rake in in, in in licensing and rights fees, right? Okay. And there's been some talks of maybe doing a game in Asia as like during the season as a real game there. There's also been talks of having one more English Premier League game that counts in the United States because you know when English Premier League comes or you know your Serie A team comes, those are your best Italian teams. Inter Milan played who did they play? United, Manchester United or something here at RF at um, FedEx Field with the Redskins play. And, you know, they did a bunch of numbers. And you saw what, I think, Man United had. I think Man United had a game against, God, who was it this summer? It sold out 100,000 seats. You know, but these are all preseason games. Just the idea of adding one more game to a 38-week season um, caused massive uproar. Massive uproar among various confederations, among players, among fans, among media. And the idea was... Don't you make enough money now? We understand you want to make inroads in China, and you want to make inroads in Japan, and you want to make inroads. This is for the soccer leagues, and you want to make inroads in various places. You already make an astronomical amount of money off of uh, 
rights fees. Why would you want to go and then yet demand more of your players to go and do that? And to me, that's the right response to have. Keep, there's just some things you're not going to be able to do. And you have to accept that. You can't take your product if you're the English Premier League or you're even the, you know, the uh, Champions League, which is comprised of a bunch of different European leagues. You can't, you can't keep doing more and expect the same level of play, expect the same level of uh, uh, quality. It's just not going to happen for you. It's, it won't work. Um, there are just some natural limitations to this. Yet, even with all those limitations, they're raking in money. Raking in money, both English Premier League and sort of the various rights holders for Champions League games. In the United States, English Premier League airs on NBC Sports and uh, Champions League airs on Fox Sports 1 for the most part. <coughs> They're already gone up. Anyway, I don't make, I don't make this a discussion about soccer. My point being is, here was an opportunity where sports leagues were saying to themselves, hey, should we add content? Should we go to new places that want that? And I understand UFC is like, if we go to China... We get a Chinese star like a Yao Ming. Think about how big this can be. I don't think that insight is wrong, but from the where the, you have to let that scene play itself out. You have to let Chinese promoters do what Chinese promoters are going to do, and it may take a while. And at some point down the road, it may make sense to hold one show in China as a as a as a catalyst for things, or in Singapore or in Japan. And they got a good thing going in Japan, it seems like. And I do think Latin America will be a big win for them. My only point being is, I just do not buy the idea. That if these massive organizations with billion, literally billion-dollar rights fees that they command in just one portion of the world won't do it, how can an organization that is a fraction of their size with a sport that's a fraction of their size do all those other things? It just does not compute for me. Someone says... Irish MMA will live and die with Conor McGregor's popularity. I think there'll be a boom with him, and there might be a bit of a crash after him, but I think that he will have changed the landscape of MMA in Ireland even after he's gone. Zufa will create a fighters union while Dana White is president. No. Looking back on Jose Aldo's career in 10 years, his performance at 179 will be viewed as a turning point in his ability to draw. No. Rankings done improperly are more useless than rank no rankings at all. True. UFC fighters receive Christmas bonuses. Some do, I'm sure. John Jones has had a Hall of Fame career already. Uh, true. <coughs> but what, I mean, there's no Hall of Fame. Hendricks versus Lawler 2 will, will surpass Weidman versus Machida and Aldo versus Mendes for fight of the year. Couldn't rule it out. Chelsea's career will never be, the, be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, never say never. Weidman will finish Vitor. True. The UFC doesn't understand the concept of leaving an audience in anticipation. Um, I think they used to. And I th I, it's a hard one to answer because I know they still value it on some level. The amount of hardcore MMA fans is depleting. Well, that's definitely true. What are your thoughts on the potential of Brock Lesnar returning to the UFC? I think generally speaking, I'm all in favor of it. I just think we need to have some measured expectations about what it could eventually mean, right? Because Lesnar is older now. The division itself has caught up. And there were guys that, you know, weren't bad when he was competing by any stretch. But as bad as heavyweight is relative to all of its divisional peers, I think generally it's better. You could still, for, you know, make a win for Lesnar against guys like Roy Nelson, 
right? Because Roy Nelson, while he can crack, he also is getting older, and his takedown defense has always been kind of suspect. BJJ black belt on the ground, but you just don't see a lot of that, especially against a guy like um, Lesnar, who could who could you know nullify a lot of action on the ground. So so you know I, I can see certain I can see certain opportunities for him. I don't think he can draw like he used to. Um, I, I just think if you're trying to go, oh man, let's recapture the lightning in a bottle that we had in July of 2009, you're never going to get that. But if you want to say, hey, can Brock Lesnar come back and maybe compete against some heavyweights and hey, draw some eyeballs, maybe do some great ratings on Fox or even the prelim card that he's on the main card of on pay-per-view, the, you know, Fox Sports 1, maybe that could do, do great ratings. And hey, maybe he can sell, you know, four or 500,000 pay-per-view buys. To me, that's a big win. That's a big win. That's great. Like, I'm all in favor of it, you know? But if you're thinking he can come back and we can get 1.6 million pay-per-view buys um, against, you know, Cain Velasquez or something, I don't... I mean, maybe you could. I, I just have a hard time believing that. Someone says, as you stated... The chickens will eventually come home to roost, and McGregor will lose eventually. That is not what I said. I mean, I do think at some point he'll lose. Almost no one goes undefeated. But when I said his day of reckoning is coming, it was the it was the following point. It wasn't, oh, he's going to fight the top guys, and the top guys are all going to beat him. Maybe they don't. Maybe he beats them all for now. The point was there were some concerns that he was being protected. I don't think some of those concerns are necessarily um, misplaced. But let's let's let's. Just, I don't agree with them all all the way either. But let's let's just say, um, let's just say it's all true. Let's say he's 100% no doubt about it being protected by Zufa, right? I, again, I don't agree, but let's just say he was. Even if that's the case, that never lasts with the UFC, and no one can dispute that. No one goes to the UFC and stays protected. Even if you want to argue that Roger Huerta was given the kind of matchups he needed to be a bigger star and get experience, and he was. It just doesn't last. Eventually, you get to a certain point where you're only going to fight really good guys. And if you can't beat those really good guys, they're going to give you worse guys, and either your career is going to fade at some point or you're going to leave the promotion. This idea that he will forever live in the space where he's not fighting top guys is just fantasy. The best of the division are going to have their chances with Conor McGregor, if not sooner than later. But it's going to happen. So that's his day of reckoning. But I don't mean to sit here and say, oh, well, once he fights all the best guys, he'll lose. I don't know. I don't know. Like I, I thought Conor McGregor. I, I, I picked him to beat Dustin Poirier. I never thought he'd look that good doing it. He impressed the hell out of me. Um, but there's still lots of questions. So I don't know how he's going to do. All I mean to say is, this, this fantasy, this paranoid delusion, that McGregor will spend his days, you know, weaving around all the best to fight guys who he can already beat, that will not last. If that's what you think is happening, and there's a debate about that, but even if that's true, even if it's true, it won't last. He is going to get his. He's going to have to fight for his life against the best in the division a lot. It's going to happen. So just be patient. Um, do you think his extra persona is capable of being disingenuous, forced, or gimmicky in the exact same way that Sonnen's did following continuous exposure and that eventual likelihood of defeat? It really depends on how McGregor wants to take it. He's taken it in a direction now where this this kingly royal thing. I mean, he was always kind of confident, but he was like an everyman kind of persona. Like, I'm one of the guys here, in a, in a way. Like, the best of the best still, but, you know, when he was poor, he was, 
uh, that's what he was, you know. He was a, a roughneck, one of these guys, and now he's sort of presenting himself in a little bit of a different way. I, I'm not saying that won't work, or he doesn't believe he should be viewed in that way. But it, let's see how the uh, let's see how the how the screw turns here a little bit. Because if he gets to a point where he sort of alienates himself through these weird, I mean, I don't know, I don't know, maybe not, maybe not. I can see ways where he would continue to have different turns in his personality, and people would follow him. And I can see also ways that, you know, he could turn into a sort of a Kanye West, self-absorbed, you know. Um, overrated, you know, by, by proclamation of I'm the greatest ever, it's like, well, no, dude, you're really good, but you're not the greatest ever, sort of, um, you can peep the heat, those kinds of problems on himself. But I'm not saying he will, just we'll see what happens. All right. Four events in January. Look, in January of 2015, the UFC will be holding four major events. UFC 182, which is Jones, D.C., on January 3rd. McGregor Seaver is on January 18th. There'll be a Fox card on January as well, just like there always is. And, of course, January 31st is Silva versus Diaz. Does having four major shows so close to each other hurt the UFC in any capacity? Um, let's see. First of all, I don't want to make any assumptions about a Fox show until I see it on the calendar. Not to say you're wrong, but just, you know, because it's football season, I get it. <coughs> let's just see real quick. Um... Well, let's just go with three, because three is enough. Does it hurt the UFC in any capacity? I think the two pay-per-views in one month might hurt. Um, because those are the... Like, if it was... if it, I'm not saying that two pay-per-views necessarily hurts. I can see a circumstance where you could do two, no problem. Or at least not no problem, but, you know, you can meet your expectations. The issue with me for those two is, first of all, they're great. I'm not complaining, because I'm going to watch them both, you know. So, whatever. But I'm just sort of thinking through in terms of the way you maximize sales. And I know they had to move one because of injury, and I get all that. I'm just saying. Um, the Jones DC and the Silva Diaz, they really reach into the pocket and to the interest of the casual MMA fan. And it'd be different if one, if it was Jones DC and then a smaller pay-per-view or Silva Diaz, and then a smaller pay-per-view, where it was sort of more the hardcore base. There weren't these bigger expectations. You weren't probably going to generate a lot of interest from the casuals, so the casuals would go all in on one. In this case, you're asking them to go all in twice in the same month. That, to me, becomes a bit of a concern, but, um, you know, they are spaced out pretty far. One's on the 3rd, one's on the 31st. Um, they had calendar issues that they had to meet, venue issues they had to meet. There's not a lot you could really do about it. I wouldn't beat them up too hard over it. Um, so I, I can see there might be some issue. We'll see what Silva Diaz does in the end. But to me, it's probably more than anything those February pay-per-views that are going to eat it. What's the next pay-per-view after that? Oh, Wyman Belfort? But that's also later in the month, too. So maybe not. Maybe not. We'll see. Um, will Uriah Hall ever fulfill the potential showed on Tough 17? I I think highly of him. I think he's a very good fighter. But if you think knocking out a bunch of guys in Ultimate Fighter is some sort of indication about where you can go in your career, I'm not sure what to tell you. Sportsnet dumping UFC. With, with all indications that Roger Sportsnet will not be renewing their broadcast and deal with the UFC for the Canadian market. I don't think that's even speculation. I think that's confirmed. Are there any indications as to where the UFC will go? My, I, I'm told by Canadians that one of the various TSNs is more than likely to pick it up, TSN 2 or something like that, even though TSN traditionally does not have a, a, a pretty strong history of covering MMA. 
Let me get, let me get a sip of this delicious Dr. Pepper. How important is the size of the hand for power punching? I think it's actually big. I've met guys who had just had these huge, thick banana hand fingers, and when they put their fists together, it's not just that they have a big hand, it's that the structure behind, it's like a Hellboy kind of thing, it's that the structure behind it is creating this possibility to leverage, I mean, listen, um, force equals mass times distance. The amount of force you're applying as you drive off your foot, it goes through your hips, through your lat, into your shoulder, and then into your hand, you're driving more mass. Just simple physics in some ways. Um, but yes, I believe that those guys who have, you see like, you know, Lesnar and Hongman Choi and Shane Carr when they got these like four XL gloves. I don't think it's coincidental that, you know, Herring got his face broken by Lesnar in one punch or that, you know, we know what Shane Carwin could do in his prime or that Hong Man Choi isn't necessarily the most technical striker, but I bet if he hit you clean, it would effing hurt. Should there be a clause in fighter contracts, quote, if busted for PED, payback earnings? I don't see how you can do that in a sport where guys don't make that much. Everyone wants to have these, like, financial penalties for all the kinds of misconduct in MMA. And everyone's like, well, that's because it'd be a major deterrent. I don't think it really would be. I think guys are going to do it, and you're just going to make them poor in the process. And I don't know exactly what the right answer is, but I'm really always apprehensive about taking money from guys. Like, oh, you're going to find and suspend Jason High. Why are you going to find Jason High? You didn't pay him a ton of money to do what he did. And I don't really think what he did was really all that bad, to be honest. Um, so I'm not sure why you would financially penalize a guy who doesn't have a tremendous amount of resources. So anyway, making that a matter of contract to me just seems like a non-starter. Um, let's see. Yoshida withdraws from Titan FC main event because Ricci missed weight. Yoshida, claiming Ricci's weight cut was unprofessional, makes a bizarre move and withdraws from the entire fight. Your comments. Um, I don't know why he didn't want to fight exactly. I mean, obviously, if you miss weight, that's a problem. Uh, and the way it affects their being able to have a title on the, on the line, that affects things. Um, that they cut Yoshida, I thought was kind of strange and unfair, but it's their organization to do with. It's kind of weird, man, because... This just shows you it's not a fighter's market. Because in boxing, it happens, man. Guys miss weight, and then other opponents like, I'm just not fighting them. No, sorry, it's not happening. Now it's a sport where there's more weight classes, and the division between the weights is, is much more minimal. Um, but I guess what I mean to say is, uh, when a fighter has is exercising his right to not compete against a guy who didn't fulfill the contractual obligation... Um, and the only recourse by the promotion is to then cut him loose. I understand why the promotion would be upset. Um, but I don't think that that fight necessarily was... I don't know. I have a hard time believing that, like, oh, if you took off Yoshida versus Ricci, no one shows up anymore. Do they have a lot of people showing up to begin with? I don't mean to disparage TFC. It's a promotion. They're doing the best they can. They have a CBS Sports Network deal. Good for them. I hope it goes places. But all I mean to say is, if it was just a case where one promoter was trying to do things... In the way in which they have power in boxing, and 
uh, this came up when we were talking about, you know, Carano missing weight, and her opponents were saying, oh, I'll just fight her no matter what. This really sort of just shows you that if you miss weight, and you, you're still, if your opponent misses weight, you're still expected to fight him, even if it's unfair, you know. Uh, now, maybe the promotion would be more sympathetic if the guy was over by seven pounds or nine pounds, but that doesn't sound like what the issue was. They're making it like, oh, well, he was only over two pounds, I think it was, right? But what if he, what if he was over seven or eight or nine pounds, and Yoshida didn't want to fight him? Would you be more sympathetic to him then? Would you still cut him then? I mean, these are all difficult questions to answer, but I suppose that... Um, this idea that you're making it about, well, it was only two pounds, when to me, what I think you cut him for was because you thought it was central to making sure your show for the consumer had a fair amount of integrity and that you delivered for your television partners and that you would, if you lost Yoshida, UFC veteran, Mike Ricci, UFC veteran, for some kind of title, that this would be a big problem for you, which means you'd probably still cut him if you, even if you did have seven or eight or nine pounds over. And that's, to me, that's problematic because if your opponent is that far over, you shouldn't be obligated to do it. Again, only two, but if you're cutting them for reasons that it could be two or ten, fighters fighters just don't have any rights. <laughs> they just don't have a lot of protection, man. They just don't have a lot of protection. And listen, Titan FC is within their rights to cut these guys. I'm not saying that they somehow acted out of the boundaries of what it was they're allowed to do. No, everyone everyone did what they were allowed to do. Um, I just feel like we, we you know... I'm going to I'm going to keep people think I'm like I naturally have this desire to protect the fighter against the promoter and that's really not the case. What really is the case is that we live the, the sport today does not protect its fighters. Very little. There yes, the UFC is good about providing insurance and there is some commission oversight. Uh, you get the idea. But even right now, if you follow Akira Korsani on Twitter, he's been talking about not getting paid by fear of the fighter, which was, you know, one story and a thousand stories down the line. Uh, fighters not getting paid by by uh, sponsors. Um, the way in which they have the ability to negotiate is severely undermined by the lack of any kind of collective ability to do so. And so until the, the power shifts, everything is so one-sided for the promoter that I have very little sympathy for them, to be quite honest. Um, once things are a little more equal, then individual situations we can then parse out blame or who, who should benefit more and who should lose more. But we don't exist in those situations. We exist in a situation where if you don't fight a guy who didn't fulfill the terms of his contract, you lose your job. Some, that doesn't quite sit well with me. Fantasy pay-per-view question. If you could make your own fantasy pay-per-view card, what would it be? Maximum of two title fights. For me, example. John Jones versus Gustafson, two. Um, sure. Anthony Pettis and Nurmagomedov, sure. McGregor Sanchez, sure. Condit Lombard, sure. And then someone says Dana White, Tito Ortiz. I don't know if I'd add that. I would add um, DC versus Velasquez. I think that might be kind of fun, right? MMA beat question. Why do you always have those annoying, ugly, empty cups? Don't get me wrong. I love the show, but it comes to a point that I don't want to watch it anymore thanks to the cups. sort of find that hard to believe that you wouldn't want to watch for cups that actually have water in them. <laughs> uh, Luke, having missed three months of any MMA news, what have been the two biggest stories of the MMA world in that time? Injuries, for sure. Um... And probably PED stuff. 
And what event, decision, or outcome that I have missed do you think will have the biggest impact on the sport in the mid to long term? Injuries. Injuries, injuries, injuries. Um, and thanks for watching the show. Please give us a video office tour behind the scenes or of your show and events from media's perspective. You want a video office tour? can't see much. This is the room that I'm in. This is the setup that I look at with you donks. Um, there you go. The uh, newsroom, if you go here, see this door here? If you go out the door and this way and then that way, you get to the newsroom. There you go. Fascinating, right? Dana White's approach with the public. Luke, I was just thinking about the manner in which most CEOs and presidents, in fact, most of the figures that head of a company conduct themselves. Okay. Uh, you would never see an NBA or NFL guy be so accessible to the fans and talking so happily with the media. Um, there was a time when Dana White did a lot of scrums. What are the positives and negatives of a major executive having direct contact with the fans and media? Do you think more people in similar positions should adopt this approach? because it will increase the sport's popularity, or Dana could learn how to control his behavior better. Maybe even Lorenzo do some of the talking. Well, Lorenzo does some of the talking. I mean, listen, I don't... Personally, I prefer... Me, personally, I prefer one where the executive is kind of removed from the fan base. Um, that's just my opinion, but, you know, uh, there'd be no denying that for a long time. I think White's popularity with fans, and he's like arguably one of the bigger stars in the whole sport, has been a function of his accessibility. Um, you know, uh, partly because he's been promoted that way too, but, you know, I think a lot of times fans would, would listen to White and look at him and say, I see, he's one of us, I see him as us, he talks like us, he thinks like us, he, he has he has desires and wishes and, and wants for the sport like we do, and he hates things about the sport that we also do, and, and he's candid, and he has conversations in public that we have among our friends, and I think that for a very long time, People have responded to that. I think there also a case could be made if one wanted to make it that that kind of candor also has a bit of a, uh, a drawback in um, you know how long you're actually able to keep it up. That there might be consequences to that kind of candor, which is why guys don't do that. That allowing yourself to have that kind of accessibility to fans has a toll, uh, even to media as well. And so I don't know if you guys saw, people were asking me, like, oh, why isn't Dana doing any scrums? And the answer last week was, I don't know. But then someone sort of pointed out to me that on Twitter, White was talking to fans and saying that um, he's only going to do interviews with real media. Now, what that stands for, I don't know. But um, he's just not going to do scrums with, with everyone anymore. Like, only select outlets that he views to be real media will get that. And whether you agree or disagree with it, that's another debate we can have. But... Um, I think that that accessibility that he tried to give everyone in his mind, I won't say backfired, I think it's had a lot of benefits, but probably has some limits that even he's feeling now at this point too. Loretta Hunt tweeted recently that she heard the UFC may be for sale. Have you heard any rumblings of this? I have not. Can you link that tweet? I have not heard that. Um, 
MMA shows today constantly break down the fourth wall combined with fighters trying to make up selling points and hyping a fight. Personally, I am getting quite bored of the antics and much more prefer quiet fighters like Roy or other perhaps lower skilled fighters just keeping it real. What are your views personally? Assuming people who see through it are turned off by it, does it decrease sales? If media had stopped trying to build or dissect the, the hype, I think it would be more effective from a promotional viewpoint. I agree. I always love it when it's the media's issue. If media had stopped trying to build or dissect the hype, I think it would be more effective from a promotional viewpoint. Let, let me explain something just very quickly because we run into this all the time. If the UFC has a boom year, the media cannot take credit for it. If the UFC has a crash year, the media cannot take, cannot be responsible for it. If the NFL has a boom year, the media cannot take credit for it. If the NFL has a crash year, the, U the media cannot be blamed for it. Let me, let me try this one more time. If the NBA has a boom year, the media cannot take credit for it. If the NBA has a crash year, the media cannot be blamed for it. Let me give one more example just to make it clear. If if Major League Baseball has a boom year, the media cannot be blamed for it. If MLB has a crash year, the media cannot be blamed for it. Take credit, be blamed, whatever. You get the point. It doesn't work that way. I know it's so tempting to read all the headlines when things are good or when things are bad and, and somehow be like, well, the media is involved here. Actually, let me correct that. Whenever things are good, no one ever gives the media credit, right? NFL has, NBA signs a new deal for billions of dollars in rights fees, and what does everyone say? Nothing says anyone about the media. Oh, but God forbid if something bad happens to NBA, and then everyone is like, well, with these negative media headlines, if you're blaming the media for a sports organization like a team or an organization like the NBA for their problems, you, and I'm not saying you are asking this question, Dark Toby, but if someone that's out there is doing that, they are incredibly stupid. <laughs> it is, it is, it is, it is, it is the last refuge of the desperate to point the finger at the media um, for, like they, here, here in D.C. it happens all the time with the Redskins, you know. Oh, the media is making a big deal out of this, and it's affecting the locker room. No, you know what's affecting the locker room? Not winning. And I don't see, to uh, Grant Paulson and, and Danny Ruiz's point, I don't see... I wasn't out there when RG3 got sacked, Luke Thomas. I was actually at home. It wasn't my fault. And I wasn't the one who hired Bruce Allen to run the front office. And I wasn't the guy, Dan Snyder, who has decided to sue publications and create a toxic environment among the fan base. Those are decisions made by that organization. They will live and they will die by them on their own. The media is simply taking a mirror and holding it up and showing you what's really going on. If they're doing their jobs right anyway. This idea that the media is in any way responsible for any billion dollar organization's failure or success absent extreme circumstances like some like the head of the NFL was found to be running a slavery operation or something crazy and all the reports about it brought down the NFL short of that it has not the media is simply there to show you what is happening if you think the media is being negative it's not because if they're doing their jobs right, and they usually are, 
they're choosing to be, it's because that's what's available to show. <laughs> right? That's what's available to show. We can only show you what's out there. That's all we can do. And if there's some undiscovered story out there about how great things are in basketball or UFC or NFL, by all means, let us know. But 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 when fans say, well, it's the if the media would quit doing it, the media is not doing anything to change that. We are simply reflecting to you what is out there. That is what we do. When I get on this chat, I try and synthesize information and present it to you in a way that reflects reality. I do not get on here and try to tell you things that aren't actually true. So if you see a lot of bad news, that's because there's a lot of bad things happening in this sport, in across the world, in NFL, in Major League Baseball, in whatever. If you see bad news, maybe there's bad news to tell. If you see good news, there's good news to tell. No one ever cares about, you know, uh, reporting about good news. When it, you think a sports organization, from a team down to an organization itself, a, a, an umbrella one, minds if you share the news that they sign a billion-dollar rights fees uh, uh, agreement with television networks? They don't mind that at all, man. Share that good news. They only mind it when you tell them that there's bad ratings. Oh, right, okay. But that's just the same. It's all, we're not, I didn't make up those numbers. Oh, well, you chose to share them. It's relevant. It's relevant. So, so whenever someone's like, well, it's this way and it's that way, sometimes, yes, media organizations get it wrong or they focus on the wrong things. Believe me, I can only speak for MMA fighting. I can't say anybody else. We try very hard to get it balanced. And I think we do a pretty damn good job. Not free from error, of course. But if you see a lot of good news in this sport and any other sport, it's because there's good news to tell. If you see a lot of bad news or the way in which things are presented in a way that you may not like, it's because that's the story to tell. So like in your particular case, well, we're trying to hype or, you know, we're trying to build hype or dissect. We can't build hype. They build hype. We tell you it's there. The hype is among the fan base and the community. We simply try to tell you how much of it is there and why and where it might be headed. That's it. I can't build hype. Do you think Fox would be interested if UFC sold? I'm sure they would be. Fighter mentality. If there was only one F to be given, who would give it first? Gagard Musasi or Gunnar Nelson? Musasi. I don't think Nelson is capable of giving an F. Uh, is Bellator making another mistake? With Bellator only being viewable, viable in the USA, are they making a mistake but not offering a fight pass alternative to international customers? Maybe. Um, one thing I know is that I, Viacom is a television company. It's not an internet company. And so I don't think that internet outreach is necessarily their strength, at least not yet. Although that spike app uh, could be a change towards things that are better. One, one note that should be taken into consideration um, I asked them if the Viacom move into the UK and launching of the spike in the UK means Bellator going with it. They didn't know yet, but that wasn't a no. So we'll see what happens as spike moves into uh, the UK to see if they get anything else. Um, let's see. Any more? Any more? If Hunt beats Verdum, will it be a media disaster? <laughs> 
with Kane versus Hunt as far as promoting the fight, I don't think it would be a disaster at all. It wouldn't be ideal, but it wouldn't be a disaster. Luke, if it was up to you, who would you give? Who would you have quit and fight next? Um, I wouldn't do a Mo rematch because I don't think folks would want to see that, although I wouldn't be totally opposed to that. He doesn't want to fight Newton. Um, you might just make that Ortiz fight, honestly. Let's see how he looks against, uh, or Stefan Bonner. Let's see, anything else on Twitter? Just curious on why title holders don't carry or wear their belts when they make their fight entrance. I don't I don't think it's just a custom. It's the, it's the custom of having it sort of presented in a way. I don't think they want it around their body to... Uh, I don't know. It's a good question, actually. But I, don't, I think most of them just do it out of... Uh, they don't want to cover up a sponsor or they just want, they want to be free and not have that belt attached to them. They want to have someone carry it and present it to them as if sort of like royalty has arrived. But I'll ask about it just to be sure. Okay. Uh, thank you for joining me. We'll have coverage of everything. There's going to be Q&As, weigh-ins, the whole nine yards. That's coming. Uh, we'll have coverage on Friday. I'm going to try and have Glory 18 coverage. We're a little short staff. Guys are on vacation. But um, I'll make an effort to get at least results up for that. Um, Saturday we're going to have UFC coverage. And then Sunday will be covered as well. So thank you for everybody. We are on Stitcher. We are on iTunes. Tell the world. Tell the world we are on Stitcher and we are on iTunes and we're on everybody, everything else. We're there. So do that. That'd be great. And uh, thank you for joining me. Until next time. Oh, and share this YouTube video. Give it a like, will you? All right. Until next time, stay frosty. Love you guys.